Hello and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Resnick. This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance, IPA. IPA is a trade association and buying group representing 3,700 plus independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at ipagroup.org. In this episode of the IPA podcast, we will speak with Dr. Robert Popovian. Robert Popovian is a healthcare biopharmaceutical leader accomplished in pharmaceutical science, business, and government with a distinctive array of academic and practical experience across a wide range of healthcare and business management functions. He is one of the few experts who has studied and published both clinical and policy-related economic analysis, as well as one of a handful who have studied and published empirical data regarding emerging payment mechanisms in the U.S. healthcare system. Robert, thank you for coming on to the IPA podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been following you on Twitter and other social media platforms for a number of years now. I want to let all our listeners know and the pharmacy owners know they're listening. You are an expert in the pharmaceutical field, and you are also very well spoken on PBM issues and PBM policies. And you have a really unique background. Can you speak a bit about your professional background, the type of work you've done? Sure. Happy to. So I'm a pharmacist. I have a PharmD from University of Southern California. After I finished my pharmacy degree, I went to do a residency in infectious diseases and internal medicine in LA County Hospital at the University of Southern California again. And you know, when I came out of the residency, I realized that I wanted to get more involved in the policy and economic issues of healthcare. And fortunately for me at that time, USC was starting a program in pharmaceutical economics and policy, both a PhD and a master's of science degree. And I went through that program. I did a fellowship there in Master's of Pharmaceutical Economics and Policy. And that's where I started really gravitating towards payment policy mechanisms because my main work was on healthcare capitation issues back in the 90s, mid to late 90s, there was a lot of capitation that was being done. And pharmaceuticals were part of those capitated dollars that people were receiving. So I sort of gravitated in that area. And I fully expected I would stay in academia or work for an insurance company or a pharmacy benefit management company, actually, at that time, that they were starting to grow. And there were still a lot of them out there that was not consolidated as we see today. Unfortunately, they were not ready for what I was trying to propose, which was we need to look at healthcare costs and pricing from a political and policy lens very differently. And the pharmaceutical companies were much more apt to listening to me about what I was trying to sell, which was the idea of that you need to start thinking about cost effectiveness, cost benefit analysis. You need to start thinking about what does the outcomes look like. You can't just assume that people are going to buy your medicines without having those type of information. So at that point, Pfizer uh, and several other companies I interviewed with, and I decided to go to Pfizer and I started working in their health economics and outcomes research department in New York, specifically in their infectious disease portfolio, which was robust at that time. Eventually that turned into, I moved on to medical affairs and I became a medical director. I worked in the inflammatory space. And then that started having me to go back into working a lot with our government relations folks. And my love of policy and healthcare economics was always in the background of everything I did. 
And it gave me an opportunity in the mid early 2000s to really move into government affairs. And what I've done in the last 15 years or so at Pfizer, my last 15 years at Pfizer before I left two years ago, was in working the government relations space, specifically working the policy areas. And my expertise is really drug pricing, spending, affordability, access. And, you know, I also work on the vaccine area, immunizations. I work in biosimilars, rare diseases, but it's primarily pricing and affordability issues. And since I left Pfizer, I started working for a a patient organization called Global Healthy Living Foundation, based in New York, actually. I also have two appointments, senior health policy fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute, which is a DC-based think tank and a pioneer institute, which is based in Massachusetts, which is a state-based think tank. The uniqueness of that is that Progressive Policy Institute is more of a left of center think tank in the political sense, and Pioneer Institute is more of a free market right of center think tank. So I'm the only one I know that has dual appointments, and I'm sort of bipartisan in that sense. I don't look at healthcare from a political lens because I frankly think that when you're a patient and you're sitting and you've been diagnosed, for example, with cancer, the cancer therapy really doesn't care what your political background is going to be. It's going to work equally the same for a Republican or a Democrat. That's why I think it's a bipartisan issue that we need to address. Last week, I was in Austin, Texas, testifying at a committee hearing on drug pricing and healthcare affordability issues. And that's what my passion is. And I believe that we're at a time in our healthcare system that we need to start really seriously addressing these topics. Robert, you're a very accomplished person. And uh, I have a simple question for you, but it can be very complicated. How are prescription drugs priced in the United States? Most people, the general public believes that the manufacturer sets a price and that's what they pay at the pharmacy counter. But it's actually much more complicated and convoluted than that. How are drugs priced in the U.S.? So it's interesting because I get asked that question every day, uh, not only from healthcare professionals, but policymakers, but also my own family members, <laughs> you know, so this is not something. And the simple answer is really that pharmaceutical companies set the price. But the bigger question, the right question to ask is that what are the influencers that impact the setting of that dollar amount? So There are many influencers and many issues that go into setting the dollar amount. And insurers and PBM practices have a lot to do with what the price of the medicines end up being. And it's unfortunate because none of those entities, whether it's insurers nor PBMs, or even state government, for example, Medicaid programs, pays that amount of money, except for one entity, which is the patient. When they show up at a pharmacy counter, if they don't have insurance or they have a deductible, or if they have a coinsurance, it's based on that retail price, the inflated retail price. Every entity, the insurer, the PBM, or the government pays a substantially lower price than what it is. It's just that it's calculated back in a rebate format or everything else and concessions that are provided. So pharma companies do set the price. But there are a lot of influences that go into setting that price. And the biggest culprits in that environment are the pharmacy benefit management companies and insurers who get most of the benefits from it. So, for example, if you think about the data is available publicly for every dollar sold of drugs, brand name drugs in the United States, 50 cents out of that dollar goes back to the pharma company. The other 50 cents goes to the supply chain within that 
pharmaceutical supply chain. Now, the question is, who is in that supply chain and who gains the most of that other 50% that the pharma company doesn't get? Well, there are entities like pharmacy benefit management companies, insurers, there are pharmacies, there's hospitals, there are physicians, there's brokers, there's academia, I would say to a certain extent, there are wholesalers. But if you look at that 50% that doesn't go to the pharma company and ends up in the supply chain, I would say 95% ends up in the PBM and the insurer world. Now, the question is, what percentage of that dollar amount is retained by them? And what percentage is then passed back perhaps to the employers or to the government? And that's the big question that nobody knows at this point. So that's interesting. 90% of the money is retained in some way by the insurers and the pharmacy benefit managers. But Nobody knows how much they actually retain. Has anybody ever tried to obtain any kind of information in terms of what the dollar amounts actually are? No, I mean, nobody does know exactly what that dollar amount is. And anybody who tells you otherwise is not telling the truth. If you look at even the Congressional Budget Office analysis, or if you look at uh, entities like SSR Health or IQVIA, who do a lot of these analysis, they're all modeling data. They're based on assumptions. And the best example is CBO, when they've done the work to assume how much of the money is passed back to the government in form of, you know, after the concessions, all the fees and everything is collected by the PBMs. It's an assumption that is made based on testimony of PBM executives who say, well, we only retain 5% of the rebates or X percent of the fees or whatever it is. The reality is nobody knows. And the states are trying to get around that. And that's why we were in Texas last week testifying. Many, there was all over 20, 25 people that testified throughout the day. And really what the states are trying to do is trying to shine some light of transparency of what happens to this dollar amount. So I'll give you the Texas example that was brought up by Dr. Oliverson, who's a chairman, uh, one of the committees in the House, House in Texas. And he mentioned, basically, look, 2021, the PBMs, based on Texas Department of Insurance, PBMs have to report this information to TDI. The PBMs collected $5.9 billion B dollars in rebates, fees, and concession, all concessions, mm -hmm. the total amount from pharma companies. They only passed back about 0.3% to consumers. According to this PBM data, they retained over double digits in, uh, in the teens of dollar amounts with regards to what was retained by the PBMs, which is significantly higher, by the way, than any time any PBM executive has ever testified in any hearing, because what you hear is basically they're only retaining about between 5, 1%, 2%, 5%, something like to that rate. So it's significantly higher. And the rest went to what they identified as the plan sponsor or the insurer. Well, this is the problem, Anthony. 10 years ago, that may have been the insurance company, which then worked with the employer. But today, with the consolidation, the vertical consolidation that has occurred in the marketplace, where the insurers and PBMs are one and the same, technically the issuer is the same company. It's basically Optum taking money as a PBM and then passing back to United Healthcare. So they're just giving the money back to themselves. So, so you don't know exactly because TDI doesn't have the definition of what an issuer is. Right. So if the issuer is the employer, then we know that it goes back to the employer. We already know how much goes back to the consumer. Correct. So we will know what goes back. But currently, the way it's set up, 
that issuer can be 100% the insurance company, the plan sponsor. So it's again, it's like CVS, PBM collecting the money and then passing it back to the insurer who owns CVS or CVS owns the insurer, which is Aetna. So what we need to do is really do what Texas is trying to do, but then go a step further. And that was my recommendation to the committee is to delineate what the definition of an issuer is. So we can get to a point of what happens to that, whatever minus the PBM was retained, like 85 or something was retained. What percentage of that went to the employers? And what, again, was retained by the insurer who's the issuer? So to answer your question in a simple matter, nobody knows exactly what that number is. Just to follow up on that, the number that you quoted is really interesting. So Texas found that only 0.3% of those savings that were collected by the PBM slash insurers went back to the patient in the form of drug savings. Now, every time I hear a PBM lobbyist testify on this, they're saying that they're using the rest of these funds to reduce healthcare premiums. Is there any evidence that they're doing any of that or how much money they're using to reduce healthcare premiums? We don't know the latter part. Definitely, we don't know the latter part. Do they help reduce premiums when they include that with the employers, perhaps, but we don't because we don't know the exact number. We don't know it to the, what extent, and employers really don't know to what extent. You know, they know they get the money in, and it helps reduce the premium, but they don't know whether or not they got five percent or they got ninety-five percent. So that's another area I think, Anthony, that's important to note because this is another thing I told the committee that they need to start looking at, and that's borrowing from another state, a large state like California. So what California did through Senate Bill 17 a few years ago is create a model where PBMs and insurers had to report to the state, to the Department of Managed Healthcare in state, what is the impact of pharmaceuticals versus other medical care on premiums? This is the fourth year they've published the data. It usually comes out in January. So what we've seen in the four years that they've published this data is that pharmaceuticals as a whole impact on premiums is between 125 to 12.7%. So for every dollar of premium, 12 cents, 13 cents goes towards pharmaceutical spent. But we also know is that rebates, because they collect the rebate amount, what is the impact of rebates on premiums is about one and a half percent. So in essence, pharmaceutical expenditures, 12 and a half or 12.7 minus one and a half, that's the real impact on premiums. But we can start to see what are the impact of rebates on premiums. It's not significant. It's one and a half percent. So getting rid of rebates is your whole impact on healthcare premiums is going to be one and a half percent. And it's a one-time deal. But what benefits do you get from the rebate contracting going away? That's the question that we need to answer. And I hope that's the discussion we get into here today, because there are benefits for patients but also to the healthcare system of getting rid of rebate contracting and going to net price contracting, which, by the way, some of the largest insurers in this country engage in every day, except that the three largest PBMs don't want to do that. Do you feel that the federal government, state governments are starting to discuss these topics? Absolutely. I think federal government obviously started with the Trump administration with the rebate rule. As you recall, they wanted to eliminate rebate contracting and a much more important thing that they were trying to do, which is go to a flat fee based 
model for PBMs, which is super important. That's another thing that sort of gets swept under the rug and nobody pays attention to. Because going into a flat fee-based model for PBMs removes a lot of misaligned incentives in the marketplace that creates an environment then that the PBMs prefer higher priced, higher rebated drugs. So the Trump administration started this. It is very unfortunate that the Biden administration did not fully implement it, but they took it and they took it as savings for the soon to be passed Inflation Reduction Act. And that's how DC works is like they claim that as savings because this was going to cost some money, right? If you remove the rebates from the system, the premiums do go up, not to the extent, by the way, that CBO score stated that was completely false and CBO got it completely wrong. And in fact, Wayne Weingarten, who's a PhD economist and myself, published a paper in Health Science Journal about a year and a half ago that we remodeled what the impact should have been. And I would suggest everybody read that paper, any policymaker who's interested in that, read that paper. And it was significantly lower the impact on premiums than what the CBO scored. I've encountered that too, where in New Jersey, in the state legislature, we have a similar CBO office. It's called the Office of Legislative Services. And we found in situations when they're creating what's called a fiscal note, uh, how much a piece of legislation will cost, we found that they don't really understand the pharmacy benefit manager business. So the question is, where does the CBO get their information from? Well, Where do they base it on? That's my point. They base it on typically estimations and assumptions. And one of the major assumptions they made in scoring this piece of regulatory, because it was regulation, it was not legislation, right? Was that if you take the rebate contracting away, companies, they would reduce concessions in net pricing by 15%. And Anthony, I'm not a big businessman. I've worked in corporate America. Most people will understand if you are paying for something 10 cents today, you're not going to pay, especially in a pharma market that continuously gets more competitive, not only with other brand name drugs coming in, other alternative therapies coming in, but also genericizing of the market that we've seen. You're not going to end up paying $1.15 for the same product next year. It's impossible. You're going to negotiate a much. And that's what we know. That's what happens is that rebates have been growing over and over again. In fact, they've been growing at a faster rate than the price increases that pharma companies take. And in fact, I go back to another paper that Schaefer Institute did about two, three years ago. For every dollar rebate, pharma companies have to increase the price by $1.17 just to keep up with the stuff. So everything gets passed through. So in other words, CBO got it wrong. Because that was one of the major assumptions they made is that pharma companies will give fewer dollar amounts in rebates back to the PBMs if you get rid of rebate contracting. And that's not true. And I'll tell you why it's not true. One of the largest insurers in this country is Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser does not use rebate contracting. They do net price contracting. And they get one of the best prices in the country that is available. And they don't have fees. And that's another thing. When you don't do rebate contracting, you don't have fees. You don't have all these other garbage that goes into it. You just negotiate a net price and that's what you end up paying the pharma company. So in other words, I think you're right. Fiscal notes are arbitrary. They are based on assumptions. And unless the assumptions are sound and based on historical knowledge of the marketplace, you can might as well not even do the model. And that's what we saw happen. And I see that 
also, as you mentioned, every day in state houses with fiscal notes. That leads to my next question. As you've explained, the pricing of prescription drugs is a very convoluted system. And there's a lack of transparency with the way these drugs are priced because we don't know how much the PBMs and insurers are actually retaining. We don't know how much they're actually using those monies that they retain to lower premiums for beneficiaries. And what Texas found was that very little actually goes back to the patient yes, in form of prescription drug savings. So the Federal Trade Commission recently voted unanimously to launch an inquiry into everything we were just talking about. And they vowed to ramp up enforcement. And they even use the term for rebates. They use the term bribes and rebate schemes. Tell us a little bit about what's going on at the Federal Trade Commission. And where do you see this going? Do you think they're going to take real action in this space? So a couple of points. One, it was a bipartisan vote. Both the Republicans and the Democrats on the committee voted to start looking into this issue. So this was not a partisan vote, which is very important on this topic because this is becoming a bipartisan issue. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. I think if you look at it, a lot of red states that typically have backed up private sector insurance companies in the past are really seriously looking at this issue, whether it's Texas, Georgia, Florida, Governor DeSantis came out and really laid into the PBMs, same as Governor Newsom in California. And I mean, I tweeted they've done one thing in common, they don't think PBM model works. And you have a polar opposite political spectrum coming out to the same direction and same communication. But the other thing about FTC, if you notice, one of the things that they commented on why they are going down this path is that they typically get complaints from patients about PBM and insurer abuses, but they got complaints from pharmacies and pharmacists about the PBM practices and the pharmaceutical industry about PBM practices, which is very unusual because if you go back to the 1990s and 2000s, these entities were suing each other. They were in litigation and they commented on it. The FCC said, we got comments from two disparate entities that typically don't see eye to eye in a lot of things that they basically came to us in the same way about the practices of the PBMs and how they're inflating drug spending in the United States. So the answer is, I believe they're serious about it. I think the biggest issue for them is out-of-pocket expending for patients, how it's being impacted by PBM practices, both on the brand name side and on the generic side, which is even more toxic. And I'm hoping that they will get to a point that they will be able to shed some light on a lot of these topics and specifically regarding rebate contracting. Because at the end of the day, Anthony, rebate contracting just creates so many misaligned incentives in the market that hurts the everyday patient and the consumer. Right. And while we're familiar with these terms, some of the people who may be listening are not. And so I always like to explain that a rebate is basically a discount that the manufacturer pays the pharmacy benefit manager. And what they do with that discount is anyone's guess at this point. Yeah. And that's part of the problem with pricing or the expense of prescription drugs. That's right. And then there's a whole set of fees, which is important to note because in the last, I would say, seven or eight years, the percentage or dollar amount for rebates has been flat. It's the fees have been increasing. And the reason why is that as employers have wisened up and the government has wisened up, they put language in there that you have to pass back a significant portion, if not all of the rebates and not necessarily 
fees. And what has happened is that as the PBMs have become much more ingrained in the system through insurers and everything else, they've taken these and classified a lot of rebates as fees, and they don't necessarily pass those back to the plan sponsor, the patient, nor the employer. So that's another thing that I always tell policymakers in the state side, just don't concentrate on rebates. Look at all concessions. It has to be fees, rebates, discounts, any type of a thing that gets transitioned from a dollar amount from a pharma company back to the insurer, the PBM, should be counted as a concession, period. And then you can figure out which ones are legitimate, which ones are not. And that's what we need to do. Because if you just concentrate on rebates, and that, uh, that's another thing I tell policymakers all the time, if you listen to a CVS's CEO, they'll tell you they're passing back 95% or 99% of what they say rebates, which are very clear to say it's only rebates. They don't talk about all concessions, and that's when they get into trouble. And that's what the Texas data showed. Robert, I only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you about, I read that you conducted a study which showed that consumers are actually overpaying for generic drugs. And I've always been told that generic drugs, that's where the savings is. But I'm curious to find out what you've found in terms of overpayment on generic drugs. Because every time we talk to policymakers, the one thing they always bring up is, well, you know, we're getting savings on generics. But you found that we may be overpaying. Could you explain a little bit about that? So it was a policy paper. It was a white paper that was published by the Schaefer Institute. It was a couple of my colleagues and I that wrote the policy paper. Uh, it was Karen Van Eyes and Aaron Trish. And what we decided is basically to take a lot of the data that was available that showed that patients are overpaying. And our North Star was that patients should never pay more out-of-pocket for generics when they're using their insurance card than compared to what if they would have paid in cash. Because the two studies, the major ones that we focused on was the study that was done by Schaefer actually about four or five years ago, looking at clawback. This is when they looked at a year period of patients walking into a pharmacy and over 25% of generic dispensed medicines at that time, patients actually paid more through their copay because they paid more copay than what the, would have cost them if they had paid in cash. One out of four times patients were overpaying, even though they had a copay. The second study was really the definitive study that showed that not only patients have overpaid through the clawback, because the pharmacies don't retain that, right? That gets clawed back by the insurer, the PDM, as profit for themselves. They're profiting over patients' out-of-pocket costs. The second study was really another study that Schaefer did, and they looked at Costco at that point. They looked at Costco and they said, okay, what happened to the federal government Medicare program? What if we took the first top 200 generic medicines and then have the patients, instead of the federal government reimbursing PBMs based on the rates that they reimburse them on, what if the patients just paid cash for those medicines at Costco? What they found over two-year period, it was about a $4.5 billion in savings. Billion dollars in savings. Wow. I want to reemphasize that. This is on generics, the top 200 generics. Remember, your comment was, we're supposed to be saving money on generics. They're overpaying. We're even overpaying. The government's overpaying for generics. So that's why it enticed us to write this policy paper. And really, our North Star was that the patient should never pay. And we talk about a lot of policy solutions in there, which is, number one, we need to create a transparent, competitive, regulated marketplace where pharmacies without fear can put their cash prices in and then compete on cash prices with generics. And the second thing, should generics be covered on their insurance model anymore? 
or is it better for us to really get them out of the insurance model into a cash market? And all of this information was because National Bureau of Economic Research to University of Chicago published a paper a few years ago showing that even though there is a deflation on generic prices, patients were not benefiting from that deflation. It wasn't a one-to-one. It was about a 70 or 80% deflation in prices, but the patient out-of-pocket costs for generics were only dropping by 50%. So somebody was benefiting from that 30%, and it's clearly the PBMs and the insurers. I'm glad that you're out there and you're talking about it because we need more people like yourself out there talking about how pharmacy benefit managers, like you said, are influencing the price of prescription drugs. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's all about the consumer and the patient. We're all patients and we're all consumers. And if we're all overpaying for medicines because of the insurance model, that's not a good thing. Robert, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you or want to learn more about you, what's the best way that they could find out? LinkedIn, Robert Popovian. Not too many Robert Popovians on LinkedIn. On Twitter, just like you and I follow each other, definitely. I think it's Popovian PharmD or PharmD Popovian, one of those two. Or simply, one of the things I do ask is, uh, I do have a podcast on my own. It's called Healthcare Matters. It's through the podcast network of Global Healthy Living Foundation. We're going to start season three. And we talk a lot about issues from all the way from pricing, but also about pharmacy, pharmacists, immunization issues, patients, how to access better care, all the other practices like formulary exclusions that happen and how it impacts patients. So I would say that's another way. Listen to the podcast, go to Twitter, tweet me, ask me to connect, LinkedIn, absolutely, anytime. I'm here because I'm passionate about this issue. And I think just like you, Anthony, we believe that patients should never overpay or their medicines if they're using their insurance benefits. Absolutely. Thank you, Robert. And we'll make sure to include a link to your podcast. So if people would like to go there and listen to it, you know, I think there's probably some valuable information there. And I would encourage policymakers to also listen as well. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the president and CEO, John Giampolo, who's produced and edited by Zach Stone with music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. Thank you very much. Bye for now.